This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, the Prime Minister today announcing about $250 million in support for the agri-food sector. And a big part of that is going to involve uh, money being made available uh, for personal protective equipment and other changes in the workplace to ensure that uh, workers are safe. And that includes meatpacking plants. And obviously, we've seen what can happen when those measures are not put into place. So it's probably necessary support. But there is still a question, especially with a company like Cargill, uh, with the resources they have, that they weren't able to do that already on their own. Hopefully now, as this cargo plant near High River opens, reopens this week, uh, that some lessons have been learned and some meaningful changes uh, have been implemented. Uh, but what happened there seems like something that could have and should have been avoided. Uh, and in some ways, it, it's represented a, a real setback. Uh, because certainly Alberta's overall situation, our overall numbers, would look a lot better. We didn't have these outbreaks and the Cargill plant, also the JBS plant near Brooks. Uh, And it's a reminder of if we let our guard down and get too complacent, you know, what this virus can do. Uh, So unfortunately, the situation at Cargill got to the point where they had to temporarily close the plant. And almost half of the 2,000 people who work there uh, have become infected. In fact, uh, sadly, uh, one woman in her 60s passed away. Felt uh, symptoms coming on on April 16th. Passed away on April 20th. So it's a, a reminder as well of, you know, what this, this virus is capable of. So a lot of nervous and anxious folks uh, in and around High River today as this plant reopens uh, in limited capacity. While joining us uh, for some further thoughts on this whole situation is someone who's been uh, keeping a close eye on it, Alicia Corbella. As a columnist with the Calgary Herald, calgaryherald.com, and as a piece up today, in addition to, to some of the great work she's done in recent days on this story, Alicia, good to talk to you. Hopefully all is well with you, and thanks for joining us here today. Thanks, Rob. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, so as this plant reopens today, and, and hopefully with some meaningful changes implemented, what, what's your sense of, of the mood and, and the atmosphere around it and, and for those who are going back to work today? Oh, well, the workers are, are terrified. I mean, you know, the ones who haven't caught COVID-19 yet are, are anticipating that they will. And, you know, um, Cargill has made a lot of changes. They closed the plant on the 20th, uh, the day after, um, Hep Bu, uh, the woman who passed away, uh, the, their employee who passed away, uh, died. And, um, and then they put up finally put up some protective barriers between the workers. I mean, um, I don't know if people have seen some photos of what the inside of these plants look like, but people stand shoulder to shoulder, um, it, making cuts on the meat, and they are standing right next to each other. They were given no PPE until very late in the game. We're talking after 
uh, like just days before the plant closed, they started giving out PPE. Managers were walking around with um, face masks and sometimes shields, but not the employees. And um, so, you know, it's no wonder this happened. I mean, here we are. People get tickets if they sit down on the grass and and eat a sandwich, uh, you know, five feet away from their friend. Um, But it's okay for a thousand people in a room to stand shoulder to shoulder with no PPE. I mean, it's actually, you know, I'm I'm actually quite angry about this because, you know, I've met these people. These are hard, hardworking people doing what most Canadians wouldn't want to do, right? Standing Mm -hmm. for eight hours a day, cutting up beef, slaughtering beef, you know, it's hard manual labor, and um, and they they were treated very poorly. Very little was done to protect them from this. And so, you know, okay, there's been one employee who is sick and in uh, who died, but several have been hospitalized. The mother of a of um, a man who, or the mother-in-law of a man who works at Cargill, is still in hospital in ICU and could die. Um, but you know, it's not even that. Like this is this is a disease that can harm people's lungs. And you know, the other thing that ticks me off about this, Rob, is that the company has uh, you know touted that they will give two weeks of. Um, paid leave should they come down with this uh, virus. Well, not everybody gets better in two weeks. Like for some people, their lungs are damaged and they are very weak after this. Some people, I was talking to one family, the family where the the mother-in-law is in the hospital and the son, uh, the the 20-year-old who works at Cargill, he only had a cough. He had no other symptoms. Like, so, you know, you can go, we know now that there is this huge um, spread of various symptoms. And um, uh, so, you know, some people are going to be really, really sick. And what, they stop getting paid after they're injured on the job? You know, and the other thing, I'm not here to bash Cargill. Um, They provide an important service. But, you know, hip you worked at that plant for 24 years. Her husband didn't even get a card. Like, can you imagine working anywhere, Rob, for 24 years, and if you were to pass, your wife wouldn't get a freaking card? Yeah. Uh, as, to, as to cargo, though, I mean, look, there, there's a lot of factors at, at play here. But, I mean, even from their own perspective, to realize, look, you're an essential business. We need you to keep operating. Uh, and to not have taken the steps, even from their own selfish uh, interests, say, well, look, we, we don't want to lose money. We don't want to hurt our reputation. That Were they just hoping for the best? Or what's your sense of, of why they were so complacent initially? Yeah, you know, I've asked myself that same question. How can you, if you want to keep production going, not have provided protection to your workers who are working elbow to elbow? How? I don't get it. But, you know, it's interesting, Rob. Um, I interviewed, I was talking to Rachel Notley last week, and she used to be a health and safety and labor lawyer prior to becoming, uh, you know, entering politics. Right. 
And she says Alberta's labor laws are like 30 years behind the times. I mean, you know, there's a reason why Alberta is an outlier here. <laughs> we have worse labor laws. And, you know, um, I don't understand why our health professionals, uh, public health people, weren't saying, okay, um, yeah, we've seen your working conditions. Uh, you need to shut down until we have enough PPE for you, until you put up some barriers, until you spread out these people. I mean, you know, it, it's one thing to put up barriers between the workstations. Well, the locker rooms are packed. The lunchroom is packed. And, yeah, they put up barriers now on at the lunchroom table. But what about when they're walking out of the lunchroom? Yeah. <laughs> like, there's so much going on here. It's really scandalous. Like, I am scandalized by this. And, you know, I've spent my time talking to a lot of these workers, and you wouldn't, you can't meet nicer people. And I think the other thing that really bothers me about this is, you know, there has been community spread. So, you know, um, there's 936 Cargill workers who have tested positive for COVID-19. And then there's another 609 people who had this spread to them because of Cargill. Um, And, you know, there's all this talk. Oh, and I get these emails from people and I just want to tear their heads off. They keep saying, oh, well, you know, it's because they live in, in crowded houses and they carpool. Why would you not carpool with a person you were just standing next to for eight hours? Right. Yeah, that, that seemed like, and I've heard that myself, and it, it's, it seems like a strange argument here, but I mean, it does, there are people clearly who are, are putting some blame on the workers, and, and obviously that's going to impact their lives if, if there's that, that shame and that stigma in the community, and, and oh, that person works there, you know, treat them like a leper, right? And, and yeah. obviously there's, there's that side of it. Oh, there's all that ignorance. I mean, what's wrong with people? You know, honestly, um, these people should be loved and supported. They deserve to be protected on the job. They haven't been. It's a scandal. Um, Albertans should be furious that this has happened, you know. And meanwhile, because of these kinds of outbreaks, what you think it's, uh, you know, uh, how safe are uh, High River businesses and uh, Brooks businesses now as a result of this? Can they open? Will they go bankrupt in the waiting? Like, you know, it, this has implications. And now the Prime Minister is giving $250 million to companies like Cargill so that they can buy PPE. Cargill is owned by a family. 14 members of that family on its board are billionaires. They can afford right. to buy their own damn PPE. Yeah. Right? They're a global company. They've got buying power. Buy your own PPE for your workers, period. End of story, as far as I'm concerned. I'm really angry. I don't want yeah, tax dollars going to Cargill. Like, right. seriously, zero. They don't deserve it. Um, JBS doesn't deserve it. None of these companies deserve it. They and that's make the thing. Billions, they, yeah, billions of dollars. Exactly. You know, and that same thing. I mean, we saw recently uh, Loblaws uh, announced their their latest earnings, and and they've done very well. Look, there there are a lot of businesses that are going to really be hurting from the situation, but there's kind of that select few that are actually going to do a lot better 
as a result of this. And that would include these meatpacking plants. They're doing essential work. There's still demand for their product. Uh, and so, as you say, I mean, to, to take that selfish approach that we're just going to focus on you know, the profit side and, and not take a step back and realize that it's in everyone's best interest uh, to ensure that these environments are safe. And it just uh-huh. really feels like it was just, as you say, just a, a massive failure. Epic failure. Epic, epic failure. And, you know, I just want to say something about that hip boy. 67-year-old woman, she always put her makeup on before she went to work at 6 a.m. in the morning and um, was cheerful. And she did speak English. Um, It was just really hard to understand her. So to make herself understood, she handed out candies and laughed a lot and was jolly and said nice words to people. That's who she was. She was loved by her husband. She had lots of friends. Um, So that's important. People need to understand that there are faces and names behind these numbers. Those 936 Cargill workers who've been infected, there's implications for them going down the road. They um, can have lung issues. They have family members who've been infected and who are very sick. Um, they're afraid. They're petrified. And they were asking, you know, they were, they started noticing their, their managers walking around with face shields. Hmm. And they had nothing. Yeah. I mean, this is beyond scandalous and shameful, in my view. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's really disgusting. Yeah, and and it just that it just it feels like it was so avoidable too, and I think that's what's so frustrating and uh, maddening about it all. Uh, much more as mentioned, Calgary Herald today, including your your latest piece today. Uh, Leisha, always great chatting with you. Thanks so much for making some time for us here. You're welcome, Rob. Take, Take care. care. Yeah, uh, Leisha Gorbella, uh, columnist with the Calgary Herald, CalgaryHerald dot com, and uh, she's had a, a few really interesting pieces on this. And yeah, it is it is upsetting, and we should be upset that it it, it didn't need to happen. It's not unique to, to this company. It's not unique to Alberta. I mean, the story today, the uh, Tyson, Perry's uh, Tyson plant in Iowa. It's had 730 confirmed cases. That represents almost 60% of the people who work there. So it's, it's happened elsewhere. So maybe it's an indictment, not necessarily of, of any particular company, but kind of, of of the industry to think, well, we're still open. So it must be just like business as usual. And clearly it's not. There are obviously ways to, to keep doing what you're doing and at the same time keep people safe. Hopefully now we've arrived at that point. We'll see how things go in the next uh, few weeks here. Now, one of the big questions around reopening the economy is when and how do we get to the point where restaurants can once again allow people to come in and sit down and have a meal? I mean, obviously, it's been good that uh, restaurants have been allowed to stay open through all of this and, and to give them some flexibility and, you know, uh, allowing, for example, um, liquor to be delivered or, or sold to their customers. And, you know, certainly the premier and the mayor and others have really made a point of urging Albertans, right, support your local restaurant, you know, uh, takeout, delivery are all options. And, you know, people have been doing so. But there's no getting around the fact that this is representing a huge hit to, to restaurants' bottom line. And even a situation where they can reopen with limited capacity, 50% capacity, it's, it's still going to be a hit to their bottom line. And, and hopefully we can get these steps right and, and get back fairly soon to a situation where it's, it is back to business as usual for restaurants. But what needs to change in the meantime? 
And how does the restaurant experience change through all of this? And what's expected of restaurants? So there's a lot of questions about, you know, what resuming operations looks like and little things like, do the menus now have to be disposable? What has to be cleaned and sanitized? Uh, even if you've got 50% capacity, what about, you know, the lobby, the front, where everyone comes in and waits for a table? How do you manage that? So a lot of things that restaurants need to figure out, and they're definitely looking for some guidance from government on that point. Joining us to talk more about all of these issues, very pleased to welcome the program, uh, Mark Von Schelwitz, who is uh, Vice President for Western Canada with Restaurants Canada. Mark, good to talk to you here today. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Rob. Uh, so, it, you know, Alberta's laid out its plan, and there's some stages here for, for you know, where we're trying to get to, and obviously that, that involves restaurants, at least in, in the relative short term. So what, what kind of communication has, has been there between, you know, your organization, between restaurant owners, and, and the Alberta government? Yeah, well, I guess, first of all, I'd like to thank the Alberta government for including on-premise dining in phase one of the reopening plan. And uh, partial reopening cannot come soon enough for the many on-premise restaurants who have been struggling to pay their operating costs uh, with little or no income for the past couple of months. So, um, you know, we also got uh, a lot of answers to questions. We really appreciated the government organizing a town hall for all those phase one sectors that are reopening. And uh, there was a great town hall meeting last night uh, where our members had the ability to ask Dr. Henshaw and various government ministers some questions on reopening. And what we've done is we've provided the government with uh, uh, some factors to consider when we're, we're talking about reopening and a draft sort of best practices guide that uh, we're working on for our members that we certainly want to adapt and align with, uh, with the provincial uh, operating procedures when they come out. So we've tried to anticipate a number of those things. And uh, um, the other thing that, uh, you know, we certainly want to mention is that no food service establishment is the same, so you have to have some mm -hmm. sort of flexibility in whatever operating uh, protocols are available so that it can adapt to, to a variety of different restaurant settings. So, uh, you know, we, we've certainly appreciated that we've put that information out there and we've gotten a great response back. And, and uh, I know that restaurants are actively looking right now at, uh, uh, you know, three basic things. How do you change your floor plan to respect the physical distancing rules? Uh, what sort of new uh, cleaning and sanitation protocols you should be putting into place? And what sort of health and personal hygiene protocols do you have to put in place to ensure that, uh, uh, you know, we're protecting our, our staff and our patrons as best as possible? And, you know, for us in the restaurant industry, um, it's always been mission critical at the health and safety of both our staff and our guests. Uh, and that was, it's just as true now as it was before COVID-19. So it's an innovative industry and certainly through the pandemic, it certainly tested restaurant innovations as many have had to reinvent themselves to survive restrictions placed on them due to COVID-19. And yeah. they're going to have to reinvent themselves again as they prepare to reopen uh, with new physical distancing, cleaning and sanitation and health and personal hygiene protocols. So um, looking forward to the challenge, but, uh, you know, that's, it's certainly not easy for a lot of our members. Some of them are still uh, asking themselves the question on whether or not they can even break even at a 50% capacity, recognizing that a lot of them, when in normal times, do, uh, you know, close to 50% of the business on, on busy Friday, Saturday nights when the place is full. So uh, so, the, so they're, they're working on those types of uh, protocols right now and, uh, you know, calling back staff. Obviously, we're going to have to do some training and, and uh, on these new protocols, and, uh, and they're actively looking at their floor plans right now and how they can make that work for their particular establishment. 
Right, as you say, and different establishments are going to have different needs and, and circumstances, and, and it may well be that, that some choose to go above and beyond what, what public health officials are recommending. But what needs to be there in terms of a baseline, in terms of you know the government or public health officials saying this is what's expected? Right, so let's talk about the 50% uh, um, capacity rule. Now, we've certainly had some questions from members. What if we submit a floor plan where we're respecting the two-meter social distancing or we have physical barriers up and we come in at 52% or 54%? Uh, can we get a floor plan approved that may not be exactly at that prescriptive 50% level? Uh, certainly getting, you know, a lot of questions about the need for PPE. You know, obviously, if we're going to have staff working closer than two meters together, uh, what does, what sort of uh, PPE is going to be required for, for the industry? Um, as well as, uh, you know, what are the different protocols to make sure that when your health, uh, you know, you're doing the health checks when your staff are coming in to make sure that they're healthy. Um, what sort of service protocols are going to have to be changed? So, for example, if you're bringing a guest a bottle of wine, do you just uh, give them, maybe do the first pour and let them reserve themselves, to, again, to minimize that, that contact? Uh, how do you deal with uh, uh, the sort of common areas, the waiting areas out front, and do you, you know, go more to a reservation system you know so there's all those different things and as far as the cleaning protocols as well like you mentioned on menus either have them you know with recyclable disposable menus or have some sort of a laminated menu that you can ensure that you can clean and disinfect after each use uh, you know where do you how do you clean the tables the, the common areas uh, what are the protocols for the kitchen so those are all all questions that uh, that our members are dealing with right now, and uh, we provided them some some temporary guidance until we get uh, some of those gaps filled in with the province. And uh, I know that they're working really hard over the province uh, with our draft document and to come up with those uh, specific protocols that will be required to uh, move to this new normal of uh, of uh, you know very much uh, restricted capacity limits for for guests. So, uh, but I know that they're very anxiously looking forward to to getting back into business those that uh, where it makes sense to do so uh, getting their staff back in starting training and uh, those preparations are underway as we speak you know and i wonder too i mean you know and i've, I've heard the idea floated uh, of allowing restaurants not every restaurant has patios or, or outdoor dining options but you know just as some cities have blocked off streets for additional uh, pedestrian traffic because you know, certainly people aren't driving as much, whether there's an opportunity to give restaurants some flexibility, because certainly there's, there's, I, I think, you know, a consensus that there's, you know, less, less concern when it comes to uh, outdoor situations. And, and if there's an opportunity uh, to have more dining outside as we go into the summer months, maybe we could find some creative ways of doing that. Is, is that something that's, that's being discussed at all? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something I think we certainly highlighted as well is that, you know, because outdoor seating is safer than indoor seating, according to our public health officials, uh, what can we do to expedite sort of uh, bigger patio areas? Uh, also, you know, there's there's been some pilots of things called parklets where you can use adjacent public land or to your point on the street. I mean, Stephen Avenue in Calgary would be a prime example of that, where maybe you could expand that that seating into those sort of public areas. So mm -hmm. uh, certainly that's a component of it. And, and uh, you know, it doesn't have to be right away, but uh, as we go through this, we, we'd certainly like to see some more flexibility on patios. And, and sometimes, you know, getting those patio licenses is, is a pretty uh, cumbersome process. So if we can expedite uh, restaurants where it's feasible to, to have patio space to, to seat their guests, obviously that uh, is something that our, our members are asking for as well.
And, and certainly I would think in, in, at least for now, I mean, you know, to a lot of people still, takeout and delivery are going to be attractive options. Uh, and I know, as I mentioned, the Alberta government's been, you know, added some flexibility in allowing restaurants to be able to include liquor sales with those takeout purchases. Are, are those the kinds of provisions that we're probably going to have to keep in place for a long time, that there's still going to be need to, to, to be flexible when it comes to how restaurants serve their customers? Absolutely, Rob. I mean, right now we're in an unprecedented situation. I know it's an overused word, but, uh, um, you know, we certainly appreciated right at the outset when the state of emergency was declared that uh, the government allowed us to do that uh, alcohol takeout and delivery. And I think takeout delivery is going to be a bigger part of restaurant revenues going forward uh, because this is a, before COVID-19 was sort of an incremental sales tool that uh, they'd use. Now it's becoming a much more important part of their overall uh, of their overall sales mix. So, um, you know, I think that uh, we're going to see some changes long-term in the restaurant industry as a result of COVID-19. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I certainly know that uh, many of our members who, uh, you know, some of them have had to turn in their keys, but we want to make sure that as many of those uh, restaurants can stay open and uh, uh, ensure that uh, their temporary laid off employees have jobs to come back to. Absolutely. Uh, much more at restaurantscanada.org. Mark, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate this. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks, Rob. All right. Take care. Uh, that's Mark Von Schelwitz, uh, a VP of uh, Western Canada for Restaurants Canada, and kind of where they're at and, you know, wanting some some clarity from government and knowing what's expected of them. And then for restaurants to sort of, you know, look at their own situation. What do we do to make sure our employees are safe? You know, and it becomes a situation, too, you know, where, you know, how do you change? Uh, maybe you once had a, a real crowded kitchen, right? So what what needs to change to ensure that, you know, the people who work there are safe? Now you also get your customers to worry about. Make sure they're safe. And also make sure people you know, are comfortable going out again. And, and that's a big question because a lot of that's outside the hands of these restaurants. You know, they can do their part to say, look, here's what we've done to make this a, a safe experience. So come on back. We look forward to seeing you again. But ultimately, a lot of it falls to government and public health officials. Uh, how are we doing in keeping the virus in check? Are, and, and how are we doing in, in getting the economy back on track and supporting people, right? So people need to, A, feel as though it's safe to go out, and B, feel they've got the financial security uh, to go and sit down and have a meal at a restaurant. So, so those are two big factors, and there's not a lot that restaurants can do about that. The more you actually understand this virus, the more you begin to know that temperature taking is not effective at all. Um, you know, in terms of people coming across, even if you're infected, um, we know that the likelihood of picking up someone who's symptomatic um, is sort of um, relatively inefficient. All right, that was uh, Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, uh, asked today about uh, Air Canada's plans to begin uh, temperature checks of passengers before allowing them to board aircraft. Now, certainly it's something we see in, in places like South Korea and Taiwan as part of a, a broader public health response, but the idea of uh, looking for anyone who might be suffering from a fever is, you know, it's it's, it's not... Um, uh, solution in of itself, but it can be part of, of a broader response. But, you know, she says, look, I mean, obviously, someone who's not yet symptomatic, not going to have a fever. And even someone who who has the virus and is symptomatic, it's a common symptom, but it's not a universal one. 
but I suppose if we're looking at various measures that can keep airlines safe, that might be one of them. But look, I mean, it's it all speaks to, you know, the pressure on the airline industry right now uh, to take steps to keep passengers safe, to show the public that they're doing things to keep people safe. So the people at least feel confident and comfortable getting in an airplane. But there's a whole broader range of challenges the industry is facing right now. The people just aren't aren't traveling. Countries have travel restrictions in place. Um, so for the most part, it's not even possible for people to to visit other countries. Traveling across Canada, I, I suppose, technically is is feasible. But I mean, the message to everybody is stay home. And people are taking heat. As we saw today, Air Canada announcing a loss in this first quarter, just over a billion dollars compared to a $345 million profit in the same quarter last year. So those are some pretty bleak numbers. And this is not a situation that's going to turn around quickly. So where does that leave the airline industry? Joining us for some further thoughts is Carl Moore, Associate Professor at McGill University Business School, also a longtime aviation observer and industry expert. Uh, Professor Moore, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. That's a big loss for Air Canada, but I suppose given the circumstances, probably not a big surprise, is it? No, not at all. I mean, the flights are down by 90%. Porter is closed entirely. It just, the revenue has dropped off a cliff. And there's still a great deal of cost. Uh, uh, the fleet, uh, buildings, some salaries and so on that, that keep rolling on. So it's, it's just very tough times for Air Canada. But it's tough times for virtually every airline in the world. It's not just a Canadian problem. It's a worldwide problem. Yeah, it is. Um, and, it, and it's one of those those industries or that sector of the economy that, you know, it's not as though we can flip a switch and say, okay, you're allowed to operate now. I mean, it's, it might be easier for, for, say, restaurants or cafes to start to get people back. But, I mean, the airline industry is operating right now. It's just there's there's no reason for anybody to get on an airplane at the moment. Well, there are. I mean, a few people, one of my former students went from Toronto to their place near Calgary, uh, her parents' uh, place out in the country, just she could work from there and be in nature yeah. and enjoy Alberta as opposed to downtown Toronto. But there weren't a lot of people on the plane, most wearing masks, and there's not a lot of flights. So some people are traveling, but most of us would be a bit nervous about, boy, if I can't barely leave my house, what am I doing getting on a plane from Montreal to Calgary? Right. And so that that's the reality right now. I mean, uh, A, obviously, we're concerned about the virus. B, people are being told to stay home. I mean, C, there are a lot of travel restrictions in place. But I, I suppose as, you know, maybe we start to get ahead of the virus a little bit, as maybe some of these travel restrictions are, are lifted, that's not going to be necessarily instant relief for the airline industry. What, what's it going to take to, to start to turn things around, do you think? Well, something where most people, in fact, Air Canada says it's probably two to three years, which was what I added, the International Airline Transport Association, which is headquartered in Geneva and Montreal, says it's something where the first thing is the medical side to it, is when are people going to feel that it's comfortable and appropriate to get on a plane where there's someone sitting right beside you without an empty metal seat, for example? When are people going to feel comfortable to take that risk? And so... That's going to be a while till people kind of get in their own head that it doesn't matter if the plane is crowded because they had record load levels at Air Canada, at WestJet, and they were doing very well indeed. It was great to be an airline in Canada. People were traveling as a good economy. But another element is the economy is going to be down. We are into a recession, which means businesses will travel less because to save costs. And people who are you know out of work or their income has dropped substantially 
are they going to be less apt to fly to Hawaii to go uh, spend, you know, a week or two in the winter? So what we'll see is that travel's down for Canadians, but a huge industry in Canada and Alberta, indeed, is tourism. And we have one of the most beautiful countries in the world. It's safe. It's a wonderful democracy. A lot of people have relatives here, but the Chinese tourists are going to be, are going to be way down mm-hmm. compared to our Americans. So it's something where um, they're just, it's not only business travel down, Canadian um, you, families like yours and I traveling, but it's going to be all those tourists that come to Canada. So it's going to be tough times for a year or two until a vaccine or something like that where people go, it's fine, I can go back to what, like it was in January 2020, way back in the past. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you mentioned, I mean, you know, the idea of physical distancing on airplanes and, you know, planes are pretty empty anyway. Maybe that's easier to do. But the idea of keeping seats empty, finding ways to keep people apart, I think that's going to have to be the reality. To what extent can airplanes be you know, retrofitted or, or altered significantly, uh, either to you know, somehow have barriers between passengers or something more permanent in, in terms of, of physical distancing. I mean, that would require a tremendous investment, and, and maybe after we get a vaccine, it wouldn't even be all that necessary. But is that something that the in- industry is going to have to figure out in the short term? Well, they're, they're looking at it, and I've seen some interesting designs where you'd put um, you know, the middle seat, particularly in business class, facing the other way and put plastic sheets uh, between them, but this is very expensive to do, and do we need to do it in term, unless the planes are full anyway? Because if the plane is going to be half full, the question is, and the, the accounts are looking at, does it make sense economically to fly the flights if the plane's going to be half full? But to add all this cost onto that, it's very expensive to do that. Um, they might in the first class that you fly Emirates or something like that where it's incredibly expensive. But this is just not something you want to do financially. It's just not great. We may have to do it, but at that point, is the airline industry in Canada, is Air Canada, WestJet, and Porter, and so on, are they viable? What I'm arguing, and you know, I've written some articles about this, saying is the Canadian government has got to step up to the plate and support the airline industry in Canada as the Americans, the Europeans, and the Asians have in many countries. That KLM, Air France, Lufthansa, BA... American United, all these uh, companies are getting support from their governments. I think the Canadian government has got to do the same. They've added a bit of support in the sense all the laid-off people, or most of them, are now being paid to some degree by the Canadian government. So that is helpful, but I think it's got to go beyond that if we want to see a viable airline industry. And Canada needs it from the viewpoint of business, but also tourism. So what does that look like? I mean, are we talking about access to, to credit? Are we talking about direct financial support, maybe even potential government ownership stake? What, what might that look like? Well, I think it would be some mix of that. Um, I'm not a finance guy, and so you let the, the finance people sort that out. I suspect it's going to be in billions of dollars. And I don't think we're going to go back to the day when Air Canada was owned by the government. <clears throat> I don't know if you're old enough, Rob, but it was that long ago that it's, it's a legitimate question to ask if you're old enough to remember when it was owned by the government. But it was under Mulroney, as I recall, and I've seen Brian occasionally here in Montreal, and he's an elderly man now. This was a long time ago right. that it was part of the government. And I don't think we want to go back remotely to that. Governments do not run airlines well. They, they need to support them in this literally the most unique event in aviation history, the U.S. and the Europeans, the Asians, are supporting their airlines. I think we need to do the same in Canada, but this is a one-time event, and 
the government doesn't run businesses well. They run government well in their better moments, but they don't run business well. I'm curious, too, and I've seen some debate on this point about what this is going to look like for travelers, that either because the airlines are losing so much money, fares are going to have to go up, or because the airlines are going to be so desperate for travelers that fares might actually go down. Where where do you come down on that question? Well, they're going down now for future travel if we're allowed, you know, and and within Canada we're allowed. But the prices, reasonably good prices, but do you fly a plane which is one-third full on highly discounted tickets, you go, from a business viewpoint, you go, this is dumb. Yeah. It's like selling your, you know, a house that you bought for a million for $500,000. Just, this is not a good idea. You're losing money. And, and if you lose money, the more flights you have, the worse it gets. So there's a, there's a real tension between the supply and demand here. And demand's going to go up if we increase the price, but then is it economical to fly? Is a real question that there's a lot of people in Calgary and in Montreal, at Air Canada and WestJet, respectively, or WestJet and Air Canada, respectively, looking at those questions. There's also testing. And I mean, you know, we're, we're certainly making progress in, in, in our capacity to test. And there's, there's technology um, that, that certainly is coming that might offer the, uh, you know, the idea of a more rapid test. I, I do wonder, and I, I know, look, I mean, other industries are probably looking at this, but certainly for the airline industry, the concept of the idea of everyone who's about to get on a flight, almost like going through security, you go in a room, you're tested, you wait 20 minutes or 30 minutes for the results, and if you're negative, you can get on the plane. That would be ideal in a lot of ways for the industry. I don't know how realistic it is, but are they looking at testing maybe as a big part of uh, of their recovery strategy? Well, they look at taking temperature, and then like when I go to a local supermarket, they say, have you traveled? Have you been exposed? Yeah. And they ask questions that I could lie about. Temperature, it's not the most... Uh, not the most uh, effective thing to do in terms of getting the right temperature, but it, it gives you at least some data. Um, but from an airline viewpoint, like to give you, I, I'm not sure I want to travel and learn I've got the virus. Like, I probably should, as a good person, go, and if I do have the virus, let me go deal with it right now. Yeah. But I, these are not happy thoughts for the airlines, one, the cost, but also just, it just makes travel really not inviting. But it, well, and that, yeah, yeah, and that's just a question. So, let's say someone's about to get on a plane, especially if they're returning home, they they test positive. What are they? Are they stranded now where they are? And do they get well, put somewhere? Like, like how does that even work? Pl- yeah, I mean, something where you, if you if you didn't know you had it, you went back home. At least you're back home, where you're covered by, you know, by Alberta or Quebec or whatever health insurance. But if you find, oh, great, I'm in Tokyo. I can't leave. I've got to go to the hospital. It's going to cost me a huge amount of money, or the U.S. You know, it just it's, it just sounds like a real nightmare. Just let me on the plane. Let me go see my family. Let me get looked after for free. And you might be in a country that doesn't have medical services as good as we do in Canada. So it just sounds like this is a nightmare. Well, it could be potentially. That's some pretty big questions for the industry. We'll see where it all goes from here. Carl, appreciate your insights, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here. My pleasure. All right, take care. That's Carl Moore uh, from McGill University. Um, his thoughts on uh, where things stand for the airline industry. So some big questions. And it all ties together. You look at these these three industries, and certainly the airline industry and tourism are very closely linked, but then we look at the oil and gas industry. And, and you know, in some ways they're all tied together because the price of oil is going to stay low so long as there is low demand, right? Uh, and whether people are driving or flying, 
I mean, it all speaks to a, a desire to go places. That's where the demand comes from. Um, so we're seeing the, the severe drop-off in demand and how it's hurting airlines, how it's hurting oil and gas. So if that demand returns, that would certainly be positive for, for both industries. But how do we get there? So even as we start to, to resume some normalcy, the, the virus very much remains a threat and, and remains a reality. Long term, uh, the real way to, to conquer this virus, as it were, is through a vaccine. Uh, if we can develop a, a safe and effective vaccine, uh, that's our really our best bet to getting back to that true sense of normalcy, sort of that, that pre-pandemic way of life. Now, there's a lot, a lot happening on the vaccine front. And, and clearly, this is, is a major, major priority. We've had announcements from governments, including uh, Canada's government, about support for vaccine development. Uh, we heard details uh, earlier this week of this initiative in the U.S. that they're calling Operation Warp Speed, kind of a Manhattan Project-style effort uh, to try to speed up development of a vaccine. Look, I mean, typically, it can take years to develop a vaccine. You know, given how important it is in dealing with this situation, uh, certainly I think there, there are ways that are being looked at of how we can expedite that process. Now, we do have some vaccines that are at phase one or even phase two trials. Certainly the phase three tends to be the one that takes the longest. And we got to be careful, too, when it comes to vaccine. But the idea of governments making it a priority uh, is certainly, I, th I think, a really important component of all of this. And the uh, C.D. Howe Institute their crisis uh, working group on public health and emergency measures, uh, looking at ways that Canada can contribute to this and how Canada can leverage its own advantage uh, when it comes to vaccine manufacturing. Uh, so join us uh, to talk a bit more about what steps the government needs to take, how we expedite this process. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, Rosalie uh, Wyanch, who's a policy analyst at the C.D. Howe Institute, cdhowe.org. Rosalie, thank you so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Happy, happy to be here. It's, I mean, it's an important topic, and it's there's hardly anything more important at the yeah. moment than um, addressing COVID. So happy to be here. Yeah, it, I mean, it's hugely important, as as you say. I mean, and under normal circumstances, I mean, governments do have a role to play when it comes to vaccine development in terms of identifying public health uh, priorities, and you know, certainly when it comes to the final approval process, but. What's different this time around, and is is there a need for maybe more uh, of a government role than we might typically see? Well, I think what's really different about the process right now, as opposed to the normal process of vaccine development, which takes about 10 to 15 years on average, is that normally it proceeds sequentially. You know, a drug is discovered, then it goes into preclinical testing, then phase one, then phase two, then phase three. And then at that point, it would start to, um, you know, once it's passed all of those phases, that's when the government would really um, become involved from a regulatory perspective and gaining market approval. And what's different now is that basically we have everybody at the table all at once, and we're trying to do all the stages basically simultaneously instead of sequentially. And so that's really speeding things up, but it also means that an unprecedented level of collaboration will be necessary to actually 
get to a vaccine. Yeah, and then we'll probably need some luck along the way, but it is interesting, as you say. I mean, it can take years to do this under normal circumstances. I know people think, well, 18 months, 18 months seems like a long time from now, but you know, if we could do this in a year to 18 months, I mean, that would be just uh, a remarkable achievement, really unprecedented in a lot of ways, wouldn't it? Uh, completely unprecedented, actually. The the world, um, the fastest time we have ever developed a vaccine was actually for mumps, and that took four years. Um, even in the case of an Ebola vaccine, which was approved um, in about five years, it, the initial discovery was actually first published in 2004, and it wasn't actually approved until 2019. So it's one of those things that really this would be a first ever for humanity if we managed to achieve a 12 to 18 month timeline it would be you know better than double our past record now a big part of the that timeline is is the actual manufacturing process so even once you've gone through all all the phases you're able to demonstrate that you've got a safe and effective vaccine the process of of manufacturing you know, billions of doses of a vaccine, uh, making sure that those are all safe, that they're they're stored and shipped properly. Just having the facilities to do that in the first place—that that's a mammoth undertaking, and that that component can take a long time. Um, but there's there's the idea that's been proposed of sort of taking that risk and starting to build that capacity now, or maybe even starting to manufacture promising candidates uh, to speed up the process. How, how do we address the the manufacturing side? Well, I think that there's um, sort of a few ways, depending on where we're in the process. I think the first thing that Canada should really do is work with, um, you know, a lot of the ongoing international um, studies going on to it actually involve Canadian institutions in these clinical trials, because that's one way that we can get at least early access for some of some of the things being tested, uh, you know, might be accessible to some patients that are at say the highest risk or you know are actually in for treatments may actually be able to access new treatment before it's approved so the first thing would be to get involved in international clinical trials um, for getting early access as fast as possible as well that will help with market approval for Canada because the evidence um, will be basically the the proof that comes out of the clinical trials will be appropriate for for the Canadian population um, and then beyond that, really, Canada is does have a slight advantage relative to other developed nations in terms of the amount of va- vaccine manufacturing that already goes on here. Um, you know, there's massive facilities in Toronto, Montreal, some, and across the country. And so we have, we already have this expertise. We already have the people that, you know, can build and run these facilities. And so one of the working group uh, recommendations is that Canada should really look to ways to leverage that ad- advantage and expertise and to both secure supply for Canadians once something is developed, if it's manufactured within the country, then you know Canadians are pretty much guaranteed that access. Um, another is looking at ways to um, maybe speed speed up the process of, you know, say the vaccine is manufactured, but then there's other processes that go along that you mentioned, say, um, particular packaging standards, uh, the way that it's stored. There's many sort of little little details where there's ways for Canada to contribute, even if it's particularly just finishing uh, the product, 
so it's appropriate for the Canadian market. It is one one way of doing that. It could be actually manufacturing a specific vaccine. Um, but really, if we were going to do that, we would have to expand the manufacturing facilities that we have because the vaccines that we already manufacture are still necessary. Right. You know, we, we still need vaccines for measles, mumps, and rubella. We still need the annual flu vaccine. So it wouldn't be a good idea to, say, stop manufacturing what we're currently manufacturing and shift that to COVID because then we'd be creating a separate problem. So really, if Canada is going to manufacture the vaccine, it will really need to look at starting to expand that capacity right now so that it's ready for when um, promising targets can actually make it to that stage and start and reach that level of higher production. Yeah, yeah, and you touched on an important point in all of this because you know we, we, this has global implications, obviously, and and I think there's at least the idea or the premise that you know once a candidate is found, whether it be in the U.S. or the U.K. or China or Canada or wherever. Uh, that this is something that, that globally everyone is going to have access to. I suspect, though, the reality of it is that if a vaccine is discovered and developed in a particular country, you know, there, there might be a, a bit of a cue for it. And, and it's possible then that that country will have, will have first dibs on it, right? That, that is one thing. And I think that also it's important to really con- consider that even if we were to ma- manufacture the vaccine in Canada, it would still take time to ramp up production. And so we need to think about strategies or policies ahead of time to determine really what are our highest priorities? Like who, who should get the vaccine first um, from a public health perspective? And so there, uh, you know, examples could be protecting public health care workers or hospital workers. Anyone that comes in contact with COVID patients should be a good candidate for receiving the vaccine first as well. Anyone that's part of say a vulnerable population or particularly the situation that we're seeing in long-term care. And so at least from my perspective, those would be two target groups to get access before the general public. But, you know, say hypothetically, we actually, you know, manage to get enough vaccine that it isn't limited in Canada. Then we switch to a new a new strategy, which is that you want people to get everyone to get access as conveniently and as quickly as possible. So really, I look at it as sort of a two phase approach where initially assuming that the vaccine supply will be limited um, because we can't know where where it will eventually be manufactured and really what the scale of that initial manufacturing will be. But we should assume that supplies will be limited and come up with the targets for who gets the highest priority for receiving the vaccine when it's first available, and then looking longer term at ways to make sure that everybody can access it while also, you know, keeping uh, physical distancing in mind and trying to minimize the need for people to gather in one particular place. Yeah. So as you say, then, these are things we can start doing now, we're planning for now. We can start expanding that manufacturing uh, capability. We can start uh, preparing for the regulatory decisions we're going to have to make, start to plan how a vaccine is, is going to be rolled out. Like we, we don't have to wait to start doing a lot of these things. No, we, we don't. And really, we should be doing them now because building a manufacturing facility obviously can't be done overnight. And, you know, those facilities themselves have to gain regulatory approval and be licensed. And so there's, you know, those things 
all normally contribute to the delay of, to accessing a vaccine. And really, given the need and the global demand, we really want to avoid those delays as much as possible. And one thing that really should be done immediately is for Health Canada and the government to um, really be as transparent as possible for what they what the rules will be for the approval of a vaccine. Are they going to be in any way different than what we would normally um, hold as the standards? Because one thing about vaccines that you know differs from treatment in some ways is that because you administer a vaccine to a healthy person, the tolerance for negative side effects is extremely low. And so, you know, is there the possibility that a vaccine that does have some negative side effects but is sufficiently protective, is that a risk that is appropriate for the elderly population? Is it appropriate to administer to children? You know, there's many questions because we don't know what will eventually come out. And so another thing the government should consider and really communicate as quickly as possible is if those standards will be different, and what the conditions and evidence they would be looking for to actually, you know, allow a, a vaccine, whether in testing or through market approval, what would be the standards and the evidence that they would need to make that decision? Right. And I mean, you know, for example, in, in the UK, the Oxford team there has been making some progress and there already has been some talk about the idea, maybe even of some kind of emergency approval that would allow maybe you know healthcare workers to uh, to have access to the vaccine i mean does, does that kind of a provision exist in canada and is that something we should consider as as sort of a short term uh solution to having something available for say frontline healthcare workers um it it is something that is uh it exists in canada but maybe to my knowledge has not been specifically detailed for vaccines um, but at least up until this point, we do have, um, I believe, as of yesterday, 15 uh, diagnostic tests had been approved under interim guidance orders. So basically sort of emergency approvals for different types of testing. And so that's something that the government is, is actually already actively doing on the testing and diagnostic side. And so it's also something that we should, um, you know, really develop and make as clear as possible on the treatment and vaccination side once, you know, now that I wouldn't say testing is fully under control, but it's, you know, that we're at a phase in the flattening of the curve that there is some room to be look a little bit more forward looking and to start addressing some of those longer term issues. Yeah. Much more as mentioned, uh, cdhow.org. Rosalie, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate this. Thanks very much for having me. Anytime. All right. Take care. Uh, that's uh, Rosalie uh, Wyant, who's a, a policy analyst at the CD Howe Institute and uh, laying out, you know, the ways in which governments can expedite this process. There's a pretty uh, lengthy piece of the New York Times that's getting a lot of attention, you know, sort of throwing some cold water on the idea that we're going to have a vaccine imminently and, and looking at some of the uh, challenges that exist and why, as Rosalie pointed out, you know, it can typically take, uh, you know, five, ten or more years to develop a vaccine. So we got to be careful not to cut corners here, obviously. Safety and efficacy are, are paramount, and that needs to be demonstrated. Now, there are ways the government can expedite the process by 
being prepared to fund and to start doing that immediately to start funding manufacture capacity, or I guess in the case of Canada, expanding what we already have. Uh, so you can start to move quickly on that. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.